previously on Flying the Line. The pilots of American Airlines were many of ALPA's earliest members. As such, the American pilots believed that they single-handedly prevented ALPA from destroying itself and were thus responsible for the stature and power of the association. But in 1956, the defeat of the American Airlines pilot's chosen candidate for ALPA president helped set the foundation for the wall that would be built between the American Airlines group and the rest of ALPA. Mistrust and the undermining of authority from both sides helped build the wall brick by brick. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, abridged from the book, Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 22, American Airlines Goes It Alone, Part 1. Clancy Sayan's departure from the presidency should have created a moment for reaching out, for compromise and conciliation. If ever there was a time for new beginnings, it was when the 1962 convention elected Charlie Ruby, an obvious compromise candidate. It was not to be. The American Airlines delegates sat stone-faced through the session that defeated their chosen candidate, John Carroll of TWA, and then silently refused the traditional gesture of unity, a procedural voice vote making Charlie Ruby's election unanimous. This ominous sign indicated that American Airlines Group's habit of opposition would not be broken easily. As later events would show, the American Airlines leadership had already decided on either total autonomy within ALPA or a formal break. Charlie Ruby was going to have no honeymoon. How do we explain the American Airlines pilot group leadership's persistent hostility toward ALPA? A case can be made that the anger they had directed at Sayan for so long, now transferring to Ruby, was a byproduct of emotional tensions brought on by the jet age. American Airlines was the first airline to put the new jets into widespread domestic service, and the pressures on the pilots of American Airlines by 1956 were tremendous. Of course, other airline pilots would soon be moving into the jet age, but Americans' pilots were first. They were worried and they might well have sought some psychological relief from their predicament by scapegoating. Modern political revolutionaries have used scapegoating as a tactic to stir up their followers against established authority. The American airline dissidents found their scapegoat in the firing of Captain Wayne Allison. The Allison Affair had its roots in American Airlines' screening program for senior pilots at the Ardmore, Oklahoma training base. From the beginning of the Ardmore School in July 1947, Americans' pilots suspected that its real purpose was to get rid of troublesome senior pilots. With Dave Banke's strong support, Wayne Allison, the local council chairman in Tulsa, led the fight against the Ardmore School, 
and American Airlines backed down. But from then on, Wayne Allison was a marked man. It was obvious that American Airlines management was out to get Allison. This was obvious when Allison, while en route to California in a DC-6, lost an engine over Arizona. The weather was perfect, so Allison, after consulting with the dispatcher, proceeded to California on three engines. The company much preferred having the aircraft in California to having it in Arizona, so Allison humored them. Admittedly, the dispatcher's advice to continue was ambiguous, and Allison's hubris and desire to display his own airmanship warped his judgment. Allison's stunt was something that might have earned a good company man a pat on the back. However, this was not what would happen with Allison. Federal authorities heard that an American Airlines plane had continued a trip in violation of federal regulations and suspended Allison, pending a hearing. The company then promptly fired him. Clancy Sayan actively involved himself in the Allison affair from the start, partly to prove to the American pilot group that Alpa would stick up for one of the group's heroes. But Allison proved a disappointment. Rather than pursuing his case through the normal channels, Allison chose to file suit against American Airlines on his own, seeking a large sum of money. As is normally the case when an individual and his lawyer go up against a battery of high-priced corporate legal talent, Allison lost. Sayan had meanwhile arranged a deal by which American Airlines would take Allison back, but the terms were so humiliating that Allison would not accept that solution. So Sayan, perhaps frustrated by his dealings with Allison, washed his hands of the case and Wayne Allison was out. However, Allison's case and the resentments it aroused among poorly informed rank-and-file American Airlines members continued to dog Alpa's leaders well into the Ruby era. In 1956, the dissidents began using the Allison case to discredit Alpa's national officers. Despite the best efforts of Alpa loyalists, the American Airlines line pilot had no real chance to be educated about the Allison case. The American Airlines pilot group leaders, who were exploiting the case for all the anti-Saiyan sentiment it was worth, monopolized the channels of communication to American Airlines pilots with distorted accounts. The 1958 Eastern Airlines strike over ALPA's crew complement policy had caused such heavy expense that the executive committee recommended, and the board of directors approved, that in the future, an airline on strike for purely economic reasons would have to be out at least half of the month in order to be authorized benefits. This policy was no secret, and the American Airlines Negotiating Committee and group leaders were well aware of it. Nevertheless, the American Airlines pilots began the celebrated 22-day strike of December 18, 1958 to January 10, 1959. 
Although the pilots deserved strike benefits under the properly authorized strike clause, they did not meet the half-month standard in either December or January, and hence could not collect strike benefits. Naturally, the American Airlines pilots, who had been hearing the assessments of the Capital and Eastern Airlines strikes, felt cheated. Their outrage should properly have been directed at their own leadership rather than ALPA's. Clancy Sayan had specifically warned them about the strike benefits problem before they went out. The final brick in the wall that American Airlines pilots built between themselves and the rest of ALPA was crew complement. As we have seen, American Airlines management fought the original Civil Aeronautics Board order to carry a third crewman on DC-6s to the bitter end, and they never forgave ALPA for winning that fight in 1948. ALPA's second victory on the crew complement issue came in early 1961, when the Feinsinger Commission, appointed by President Kennedy, essentially agreed with the idea that the third crewman on turbine equipment should be pilot qualified. ALPA's policy required the companies to bear the expense of qualifying flight engineers as pilots. Naturally, the companies resented this training expense. To get around this expense, companies simply upgraded existing flight engineers, many of whom were ex-mechanics, and would subsequently only hire pilots as flight engineers in the future. By opposing the ALPA policy, which protected individual flight engineers while allowing them to upgrade, airline management made common cause with the Flight Engineers International Association, which feared destruction of a functioning union. ALPA endured several strikes over crew complement and won its point by sheer economic force. By the early 1960s, the battle was all but won, and the Flight Engineers International Association was a fading force in the industry. Crew complement was Saiyan's baby, and by securing his legacy with it, he had possibly become, as the periodical Aviation Daily described him, the most powerful man in U.S. civil aviation today. Ironically, the American Airlines split of 1963 came just when the crew complement policy was all but settled industry-wide. Put simply, the American Airlines Pilots Negotiating Committee lost its nerve and succumbed to management's flattery. But once the American Airlines Pilots got what they wanted, they essentially turned their backs on the Flight Engineers International Association, and management hired only pilots as flight engineers. In return, management offered the Pilots Negotiating Committee an extremely lucrative contract as a reward. How was the American Airlines Negotiating Committee able to break from ALPA on crew complement? Furthermore, how were they able to sign a contract that was in total violation of a policy that ALPA had risked bankruptcy to uphold. The first reason was timing. The second was conspiracy. At almost the same time that Clancy Sayan announced his intention to resign in 1961, 
the American Airlines Negotiating Committee secretly decided to disregard ALPA's crew complement policy. In a transitionary time, with the prolonged Southern Airways strike still unsettled, and the relations between Sayan and the American group generally strained, it was not surprising that nobody was paying much attention. In addition, a staff member allegedly assisted the American Airlines Pilots Negotiating Committee's deception of ALPA's national officers. Sometime during negotiations, this staff member ceased informing ALPA's headquarters of the course that the American Airlines negotiators were taking on crew complement. In November of 1962, as the extent of the American Airlines Group's split with ALPA policy became clear, the executive committee directed Ruby to fire the staff member immediately. The staff member would later end up on the Allied Pilots Association payroll. As we have seen, Charlie Ruby came to office in July 1962 with no real understanding of the advanced state of the betrayal being perpetrated by the American Airlines negotiators. Almost immediately, the pilots became aware that dealing with Charlie Ruby was a new ballgame. The American Airlines dissidents and Charlie Ruby were thus on a collision course, one that the new ALPA president could not shift. Either he would force American Airlines to toe the line established by other pilot groups in costly strike actions, or he would meekly surrender to the group's extortionary demand for special status within ALPA. Ruby knew that submission to the American Airlines group would destroy ALPA's internal discipline and open the way for rapid disintegration. Faced with that prospect, there was no alternative but to fight with the current American Airlines leadership. By 1962, the new American Airlines group chairman was Nick O'Connell, a longtime anti-SAN. In June 1962, even before Sayan's successor was known, the American Airlines pilots apparently made a firm decision to leave ALPA if the new president did not grant them total autonomy in contract negotiations. Nobody at ALPA headquarters knew about the course that negotiations were taking until August 1962, when a member of the negotiating committee Captain Harold Miller, broke ranks with the dissidents. Acting on Miller's information, in August 1962, Ruby called American Airlines pilot group chairman Nick O'Connell to account for the actions of the negotiating committee. O'Connell arranged a joint meeting with Ruby and the American Airlines negotiating committee, during which Ruby informed them that their approach on crew complement was jeopardizing recent hard-won gains. The negotiators, with the full support of O'Connell, then were on the verge of signing a contract that would effectively scrap ALPA's mandatory crew complement policy. Instead of requiring three crewmen, each with a minimum commercial and instrument rating, the American Airlines contract would call for some additional training for the non-pilot flight engineer as a fail-safe measure. 
with such training being left up to the company. By not having to provide non-pilot flight engineers with a commercial and instrument rating, American Airlines management would save an estimated $10 million. The negotiating committee, headed by Dick Lyons, assured Ruby that the Flight Engineers International Association supported the negotiating committee settlement. Lyons' assertion later turned out to be incorrect. The previous May, the so-called Taylor Board had affirmed the broad outlines of both ALPA policy and the Feinsinger Commission by requiring the company to provide non-pilot engineers with a commercial license and an instrument rating on company time and expense. The decision of this arbitration board, composed of George Taylor, Edgar Kaiser, and AFL-CIO Chief George Meany, apparently settled the crew complement issue once and for all, to everyone's satisfaction. Ruby thought it was surprising that the American Airlines negotiators stated flatly that the non-pilot flight engineers at American Airlines were opposed to the Taylor Board's decision. ALPA was about to find itself in the awkward position of upholding the rights of American Airlines flight engineers, whose union had until lately been engaged in a bloody war with ALPA. Even more incredibly, ALPA would be fighting its own pilots at American Airlines, who also claimed to be fighting for the rights of the professional non-pilot engineers to be left alone. After checking with Joe Manning, leader of the American Airlines flight engineers, Ruby learned that Manning was enraged with O'Connell and insisted that the American Airlines flight engineers preferred dealing with ALPA. Although Charlie Ruby had no intention of allowing negotiations to proceed, he had operated previously on the assumption that Nick O'Connell was an honorable man who was sincere when he spoke of the American Airlines pilots' desire to protect the flight engineers at American from having to undergo mandatory pilot training that they did not want. Manning flatly told Ruby that O'Connell was a liar. Ruby was in a predicament. If the American Airlines leadership was trying to deceive him with such an obvious lie, what did it foreshadow for the future? Next time on Flying the Line, the dissidents at American Airlines mount their challenge and decide on their future with or without ALPA. Thank you for listening. This has been part one of chapter 22 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 1982. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production copyright ALPA 2020. All rights reserved.